May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The pictures I have of my baptism are the first recording of my attendance at church on a Sunday morning. My mom wore a beautiful red wool dress. My dad was sharp in a suit and tie. I was baptized as an infant in a long white christening gown a very long time ago. And ever since that time, for more than five decades, I have attended worship on Sunday mornings. I know that lots of Christians find it easy to come and go from church. They can take a summer off or a year away or stop going for years and then start again. Others like to switch churches every year or two. But that was never me. I haven't moved around very much. I was the person who became a member. I attended Sunday after Sunday. When I considered going into ministry, I was kind of worried that it might feel like I was giving up my Sundays. I wondered if leading worship would feel like worshiping. Would leading prayers be prayerful? As all of us know, we have suspended worship in our church building since Lent 2020. This has been the longest time in my life that I've not regularly entered a house of worship joined with a congregation, sang hymns and songs of praise, made an offering, prayed, enjoyed communion with my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm missing, I'm actually missing that connection over watery coffee and cookies and washing the cups. It's funny, the things that you miss. This week, I wondered if I had relied on weekly worship as the greatest manifestation of my love for God, going to church was the primary way I showed I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. When I was in the pew or pulpit, I tried my best to remain focused on God. Most of the time, anyway. It was hard not to be critical sometimes, and I worked hard on the loving my neighbor part of it, too. I'll confess that can be a bit of a challenge and when you're getting the stink eye for sitting in the wrong pew or that sideways glance when I would clap on two and four, you know. Today marks seven months of worshiping with my iPad on my lap. Nobody cares where I sit or how I clap. I've been forced to learn that my Christian life is more than a schedule of things to do on a Sunday. I still appreciate the ritual, the idea of Sunday worship, and I love the comforting rituals and the cultural identity that is Presbyterian or Anglican worship style. I love having a special day of the week set aside as a Sabbath day, a day to behave differently from all other days. During COVID, I've learned that my Christian life is more than any of these things. I've learned that I can feel connected to God and Christ with the smallest actions, saying grace before a meal, praying for the suffering, pushing my body in exercise, calling a friend, walking through a sun-dappled forest, 
swimming in the lake, driving on an icy road. All of these actions demonstrate loving God with my heart, soul, and mind. The commandment to love God can seem like a funny thing. How can we be commanded to love? In this gospel passage, the Pharisees are testing Jesus' knowledge of scripture. The commandments are part of the story cycle of Moses, from the time when God's people were trying to figure out how to organize themselves as a society. And in that context, they had been slaves, which meant that all power and control, all planning and organization was removed from them. Slaves don't get to see the big picture. Their world is a pinpoint focus of doing what they're told and trying to survive. Once they're redeemed from slavery, they find themselves wandering around in the wilderness asking, what next? On their own, they feel a wholehearted love and gratitude for God's choosing and redeeming of Israel. And they show it in worship and through the treatment of the poor and the defenseless. And right away, we can see the steadfast love of God towards people results in steadfast love among people. It doesn't take too long before they look for a regulatory system. They want to codify the laws and rituals. They're worshiping God and organizing themselves around that, and it inevitably leads to the development of a sense of right behaviors. There's a right way to do this. Furthermore, when they were slaves, they had nothing. Now that they're on their own, greed, envy, covetousness emerges, and they soon figure out that these are heinous things. So they quantify these things too. The first commandment to have God and only God before them always, to honor and respect God. And upon this foundation, they build more and more commandments so they don't fall back into slavery of a different kind. They honor their father and mother to keep the peace in the family. They develop a deep respect for life and property, for truthfulness. It's comprehensive, and it's easy to see why we still uphold many of these instructions 4,000 years later. But in Jesus' day, I wonder if scholars and teachers of the law were losing their way. Why were they even asking Jesus this question? What is the greatest commandment? It's a question for a child, not for a distinguished teacher like Jesus. Jesus formulates his response from two different places in the scriptures. First, in Deuteronomy, when Moses was worshiping at the foot of Mount Horeb and had received the word of the Lord. And the second part comes from the book of Leviticus. The full verse is, You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus puts these commandments together because loving God and loving each other is actually one thing. God is pleased when we love what God loves. There's an implied intimacy here. Love means having a great passion for the well-being of others. We will always live in proximity with our neighbors, and we have to get along with them. 
a quick scan of the teachings of Jesus, and you can tell that for Jesus, the outstanding sin was lovelessness, the willful omission of doing good. He gave us many examples, passing by on the other side while someone suffered, ignoring the destitute at your gate, withholding forgiveness. Jesus showed the Pharisees that lovelessness is made worse by self-righteousness or judgment. Worst of all is religious insensitivity that ignores someone's distress to preserve a petty ritual or a regulation, like allowing someone to suffer because of Sabbath or cleanliness regulations. John Vandelaar, a pastor from South Africa, says, the way of Jesus is always a shared way. It's always an invitation into relationship, into community, into finding our place in the people of God. And that means we allow others to influence our lives even as we influence them. And I've found that this way of Jesus, this way of being, is also the way to true happiness. Selfishness and covetous selfishness is covetousness in cheap wrapping paper. I want what I want when I want it. But have you ever noticed that those who behave this way never find true happiness? It's always beyond their grasp. We cannot achieve contentment and freedom if it's built on the back of someone beneath us. Now, the Apostle Paul gave us a beautiful hymn that quantifies the definition of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Perhaps many of you had it read at your wedding. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And while we often meditate on this as good advice for the newlywed, have you ever thought about these attributes of love as something God gives to each one of us? God is patient. God is kind. God is not insisting on God's own way. God is not irritable or resentful. Wow. That's an amazing God. If this is the way God feels about you, just think how easy it really can be to reciprocate that love back to God. It's not difficult to love someone who's patient, kind, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In fact, it might be easy to take advantage of that kind of love, to become like the adult child living in her parents' basement. Pretty easy to spend the evenings smoking dope and eating everything out of the fridge while mom and dad live upstairs bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things for their child. I think that's the real reason Jesus paired these two commandments together. We can't just sponge off of God's love. There's a command in there for us. If we say we love God, we simply have to show it. We have to show it by loving what God loves. 
We have to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things about the people and the world that God created. Loving God is both a blessing and a challenge. But isn't that exactly what makes life worth living? All that being said, I still really miss having all of you here in the pews before me today instead of just hoping and imagining there's someone somewhere watching YouTube while I preach to this camera. I really miss passing the peace and hugging in the aisles. I really miss kneeling at the communion rail and receiving the Eucharist. And if you know me at all, you know I'm in deepest mourning about not being able to sing with you, about watching kids dance in the aisle while Greg Paturin pounds on the drum kit. In a million years, I never would have imagined a world where it's dangerous to sing hallelujah. But we have set aside all those things for the greater good, and we're left with these basics. What is the greatest commandment? What is the cornerstone of who we are as children of God? 2020 has forced us to answer this question in a whole new way, and we are. We're phoning each other. We're Zooming our Bible studies and Sunday school. We've put our friends on prayer chains. We're going for walks and getting counseled by video call. We're texting and sharing recipes and cartoons. We're going deeper with Christ. I hope that some of us are forgiving past wrongs, reconciling with those who have hurt us, seeking forgiveness from those we've hurt in the past. When all of the former things have been stripped away to the barest bones, we find God is still here. God is with us, loving us with patience and kindness, rejoicing in these truths, believing all things, bearing all things, hoping all things. Love never ends. Pray with me. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with our feeble attempts to love you. Thank you for your outstretched hands, which showed us the way of sacrificial love. May our small efforts help us to continue to grow and stretch our muscles. May we gain courage and confidence to reach out, to love against all odds. And to God be all the glory, honor, and praise now and always. Amen.